The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, homegrown in Hatfield, Massachusetts, and providing energy savings for their customers for over 10 years. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Kalee Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, we'll hear the most magical story we've heard in a while when we talk with Dave Rothstein, who has been paddling down the Connecticut River inside an actual pumpkin. A real live pumpkin, y'all. We'll also hear from NEPM's Karen Brown about how changes in gambling have been affecting us here in the Commonwealth. Plus, we'll head up to Williamstown to find out about the films hitting the screen for the Indigenous Film Festival this weekend with Images Cinema Executive Director Dan Hudson. And right now, as with many of us, Congressman Jim McGovern is concerned about the West Bank, and he's also concerned with battling hunger. How's the match coming? It's coming well. I think people are still signing up and people are interested. We've been doing a lot of talking about it here uh, on the show and getting different movers and shakers in the anti-hunger movement on the air to talk about how they're experiencing hunger in their communities and stuff. So, yeah, that's good. And we're making some calls, too. So we're still trying to shake the trees. I'm working with the food bank to make sure that some of these people are still giving. So hopefully we'll, we'll reach whatever financial goal you have yeah hopefully it's it's interesting because being on a non-commercial station we have limits about what we can actually say and how how we can promote it which i think you are you're by have to abide by too right being an elected official maybe i do but i forget time for our weekly chat with u.s congressman from the second congressional district of massachusetts and the ranking member of the rules committee worcester's own congressman jim mcgovern a lot of questions this week in response to what's been going on uh, between Israel and Hamas, and we'll synthesize as many of those questions as we can. And I definitely want to talk about hunger issues as the March for the Food Bank is a mere 11 days away where you and I and the executive director of the Food Bank and a host of others will march 43 miles from Springfield to Greenfield over two days to raise money and awareness about issues surrounding hunger in our region. But any big surprises for you uh, with this past election, specifically in Massachusetts, Tuesday night? Well, not really dramatic surprises in Massachusetts. I was pleasantly surprised at the national results. Does it feel like your hometown of Worcester is purpling, if not reddening? And does that worry you as a dyed blue Democrat? Yeah, a, a little bit. I mean, I again, our, our city council races and school committee races are supposed to be nonpartisan, but you know that there are some very partisan people who are running. There are some people that, one, that I, I'm not terribly crazy about, but I mean, one of the problems we have in Worcester, and it's not just unique to Worcester, is I think our local media is not as vibrant as it used to be, and it's difficult for people to know what people stand for, but we'll have to see. I never take anything for granted in my district, especially in my hometown. And I'm going to continue to fight for the things that I care about, which I think is what the majority of people in my district care about. Speaking with U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, Worcester's Jim McGovern, the big topic this week from listeners is Israel and Hamas. And my neighbor in Great Falls, Ian, submitted a, a series of questions that I think really speak to the, the bevy of questions that we've got surrounding this. He uh, wanted to say that he is an ethnically Jewish person who believes that the real anti-Semitism is the exploitation of Jewish plight to justify genocide. That's his words not mine, and I know that you've signed on to 
some legislation to talk about anti-Semitism, to stand up against anti-Semitism. I think it's across the board. It should be worth noting that anti-Semitism has no place, but there are other issues beyond anti-Semitism that are worrying people, even ethnically Jewish people. One of the questions he says is, do you still support an immediate ceasefire in Gaza? And if so, what actions are you taking to put pressure on the administration? He adds, if not, how do you justify this stance when the Palestinian death toll stands at over 10,000, approximately 40% are children? Now, I know there is a House resolution, uh, 786, that many uh, legislators have signed on to. Last check, I did not see your name signed on to that. So talk about well, the difference between yeah. this ceasefire, that legislation, and where you stand. No, I, I called for a ceasefire a while ago. And the legislation that seems to be where it's focused on is basically a sense of Congress resolution. It's a press release, essentially. So, so I, mean, I, I think the focus ought to be on getting people to use their voices to call for a ceasefire and to pressure the administration to call for a ceasefire. And I've been in contact with the State Department, and I've been in contact with the National Security Council in this administration. And I've given, given my reason why I think there should be an immediate ceasefire. I think extending the, the, the fighting, I don't think in the long run, gets us to a place that anybody, no matter what your views are on uh, the Israeli-Palestinian issue, I don't think it gets you to a place where things are better for anybody. But I've been very clear on my views for a ceasefire, and so there should be no misunderstanding about that or confusion about that. I mean, the Palestinians deserve to have their rights and their and recognition and, uh, and they deserve to have a future. Having said that, people who live in Israel have a right to live with the sense that their security is protected. I differentiate Hamas from the Palestinians in the sense that Hamas in its charter calls for the elimination of Israel. I mean, that's in its charter, in Hamas's charter. I mean, the Palestinians have adjusted their view on that, and that is you know, duly noted, but not Hamas. And again, when people say that Hamas represents the Palestinian people, I mean, I think that was, was it, that election like 17 years ago. I don't believe, I don't look at them as, as freedom fighters. I look at them with a very different agenda. That doesn't mean, and it doesn't lessen my commitment to uh, a independent Palestinian state. And I think we need to, as we look to end this, we have to keep that front and center. But again, I mean, I, 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 I mean, Hamas ought to release the hostages. I mean, hostage taking is a violation of international law, period. Let and me stop you right there, because one of the other questions that my neighbor, Ian, who, again, said, yeah. is coming from an ethnically Jewish perspective, saying, do you believe that the release of prisoners by Israel should be part of this? There are hostages that are held in Israeli prisons, and are, are you asking and putting the pressure on the Israeli government in the mm -hmm. same way that you're putting on Hamas to release prisoners in this way? Well, I have no doubt that there are prisoners in Israeli jails that we could argue are political prisoners um, and are not there because they are committed violent acts or whatever. That is something that Israel need, needs to decide on its own. But I, I, I do think that people should not be put in jail for their political beliefs. But what Hamas did was actively cross over to a territory and kidnap people, elderly women, people who you know have severe health issues. Some of the people that were killed are the, were leaders in the peace movement. They were murdered. I don't want to get into this thing where, where somebody say, oh, well, you know, what, what, what Hamas did is somehow justified based on all the history. I don't, I, if that's the way we think about things, then to me, there's no there's no hope. I mean, no, this is the things that are wrong. We all have to say this is wrong. There's lots of stuff that Israel has done over the years that I think is wrong. We, can, we should say that. But it's not it can't be this tit for tat thing or, yeah, this is terrible. But, you know, we're OK with it because of what happened. No, this is awful. 
Let me stop you there again, too, because if what Israel's done in the past is wrong, is what Israel is doing now wrong? They're alleged to be bombing hospitals and schools and water treatment facilities as defense. Is that wrong? And if it's not wrong, why not sign on to that press release, House Resolution 786, to say, let's stop this now? Everybody has an obligation to uphold international humanitarian law. If hospitals are being bombed, that's a violation of international humanitarian law. No, nobody has a right to go after civilians. No one has a right to bomb hospitals. And again, I'm just I'm I'm I'm, I'm puzzled by your obsession with a with a sense of Congress resolution as somehow being more important than a definitive statement. That I just says, don't know, I don't I understand see. what the harm would be in signing onto it. What is it? Yeah, what keeps no, you from signing onto it? The harm is that there are a lot of other things in that resolution that, quite frankly, I, I want to use my own words in describing what I think ought to happen here and not somebody else's words. And there's a reason why there's only 17 people on that resolution. It's because everybody feels that they want to be able to say for themselves what they believe. And the idea that somehow calling for a ceasefire isn't good enough, but people need to be forced to go on to something that maybe they would have worded a little bit differently. I think that's ridiculous. If that's where the fights are going to be, have at it. But the bottom line is I have been very clear that I believe that we ought to have a ceasefire. I have a ceasefire now. And if not a ceasefire, at least a cessation of hostilities to get humanitarian aid to people that desperately need it right now uh, in Gaza um, and maybe find a way to get some of these hostages released. You know, and and many of them who just are not political at all. That's the the other thing. These are just people that just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Uh, Some of those people are the family that we've all heard quite a bit about that we've been following through these conversations weekly, Congressman McGovern. Um, The Medway family that fled Gaza is home, and your office worked hard with the State Department to try to get them released from Gaza. Have you had the opportunity to speak with that family now that they're back stateside? I, I haven't. Um, I, I've talked to them. I'm giving them a little time. I've, I've, I've been in touch with their, with friends of their family and their attorney. You know, we, we're going to give them a little time to get adjusted. But I am, I'm really grateful and relieved that they are home. It took longer than I think it should have, but the good news is that they are safe. In the few minutes we have left, I want to talk about issues surrounding hunger, because 11 days from now, Congressman McGovern and myself and the executive director of the Food Bank of Western Mass and a bunch of other well-intentioned and loving people from our area are going to do a crazy thing and walk 43 miles over two days from Springfield to Greenfield to talk about and learn about how hunger affects our region. And we'll be having these conversations on this show uh, in the lead up to the march, which is November 20th and 21st. It's not too late to get involved. You can either start a team, support a team. You can find out more at foodbankwma.org. But just this week, there has been an update to the way that we address hunger issues from the federal level with an update to the Thrifty Food Plan. Can you tell us what the Thrifty Food Plan is, the TFP, and what this update will mean in combating hunger from a federal level? Well, what it does is it forces us to analyze whether or not the benefit that we're providing people and the benefit that we get from SNAP, whether or not it's adequate to meet the needs given all the costs, given inflation, given all the other factors. And for years, it was done in a way where nothing changed. The benefit was stagnant for years and years and years. And then when this got put into place, we were able to increase the purchasing power of SNAP, which is a good thing. It means that people don't have to rely as much on food banks and food pantries to put food on the table. We learned from Andrew Morehouse Um, that for every meal the food bank provides, SNAP provides nine meals. So this really is an important piece of the puzzle. The problem we're faced with right now in in this current Congress um, is that we have Republicans that are trying to basically repeal uh, the Thrifty Food Plan update, which basically will mean that it will be almost impossible to give people 
an increase in their benefits, which I think would be a cruel and awful thing to do. Talk about I mean, how much that increase the, is, though, or how little I should say. Well, it, it was incre- it was increased from a dollar forty per person per meal to a dollar sixty, and that was it, right? In the scheme of things, you or I would think it's kind of minuscule, but it adds up, and it it has helped families, and especially since a lot of the pandemic upticks and nutrition programs have basically expired. This has kept people from going way, way under. And, you know, we say this all the time when we do that crazy thing of walking 43 miles. But, I mean, we live in the richest country in the history of the world, for God's sake. And we've got tens of millions of people who are hungry. And the people who are hungry defy stereotype. These are not just people who are unhoused, who don't have jobs. These are people who are working. These are people with families, with kids. These are senior citizens who have dedicated their whole life to improving our communities. And it is a moral outrage. The idea that here we are again, dealing with people who are trying to turn the clock back and make it even more difficult for people to put food on the table, I think is a, is a scandal. I really do. And you know, we do this march to help supplement assistance that goes to people because, quite frankly, the government is not doing enough. And there are some things you can live without, but food is not one of them. And I'm really proud of Massachusetts and our state legislative delegation and the governor for making uh, school meals uh, universal for everybody. I think that's really important. We need to make sure the funding is there so that the nutrition content of those meals are where, where we want them. But there are still a lot of other people who, you know, will not benefit from that. And we need to, we need to address the realities. I mean, this is, a, this is a moral question. It's a human rights question uh, here at home. Uh, and it is not acceptable. It is not acceptable, no matter how people want to spin it, for anybody to go hungry. And when I hear, and I, hear, I heard this in the Rules Committee the other day, oh, people just ought to get, get a job. There's plenty of work out there. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of work out there. And people are taking those jobs. And those people are not earning enough to be able to meet all their expenses, including putting food on the table for them and their families. We ought to figure out a way to get this right. And until we do, Monty's March is a necessity. And I think if Andrew Morehouse from the Food Bank were on this call, he would tell you how much of a help the funds raised over two days on this 43-mile brutal walk <laughs> how much it means to people in our community and uh, so i mean i to anybody who's listening here today is on the 20th and 21st tune in pay attention step up to the plate every little bit adds up no contribution is too small and no contribution is too big but we we, we, we just this is about people in our community by the way many people who we see each and every day and we have no idea how difficult their lives are so this is important U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern, who will be part of the March for the Food Bank, along with many of the legislators that he was referencing earlier and many community members, maybe even you, November 20th and 21st. You can find out all the details on the March for the Food Bank by going to foodbankwma.org or by visiting our website, nepm.org. We'll talk one more time before the march, and I think we'll really dial it in about hunger uh, next week, Congressman McGovern, to give people an idea of the work that you've been doing on the federal level, to hear the feedback that you've been getting in your decades of trying to end hunger in this country and a a hope to inspire them to help end hunger locally here. Thanks as always, Congressman. All the best. Be safe. 
Soon we'll hear exactly what it takes to hollow out a pumpkin enough so that you could use it as a flotation device with Dave Rothstein. And we'll hear about the Indigenous Film Festival happening in the North Berkshires this weekend. But next, NEPM's Karen Brown speaks with us about the gambling landscape in the Bay State. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. Welcome back to the fabulous 413. Massachusetts casino law was groundbreaking for the money earmarked to address harms of gambling, but five years since the state's first major casino opened, few are getting treated for addiction and experts are questioning where the money is being spent. NEPM's Karen Brown is two-thirds of the way through a three-part series featured here on 88.5 and at NEPM.org addressing these concerns. Karen Brown joins us in the studio now. Welcome. Thank you. So let's start out with a clip that didn't get into the series as we've heard it so far from Mark Vanderlinden. Who's Mark Vanderlinden? Well, he is one of the regulators on the Massachusetts Gaming Commission. So that's the body that is supposed to um, license casinos. And it's also in charge of um, mitigating the harms of gambling. And he is the head of the office that is specifically, um, I think it's called Responsible Gambling. Let's play that clip. Changing behavior is really hard. And so our challenge is to say, how do we provide people with information in a way that that's digestible so that at the very least, we're getting them to think about their gambling behavior um, if they choose to gamble. And it's interesting in the story that you put forward over the last two days on the air about the specific ways and programs that the state has created and the amount of money that's been put towards that. The first part of it does, the first segment has a lot to do with responsible gambling and, and about changing behavior. Can you tell us about GameSense? Sure. So GameSense is part of, is is one way that the state is sort of enacting their mandate. So when this law passed, part of the law, and this was considered groundbreaking, was that the casinos had to contribute to a fund of money to help mitigate the harms of gambling. And that makes sense, but most states don't do that. So there's currently like $24 million in a public health trust fund that is dedicated specifically to mitigating the harms. Now, what does that mean? That means different things to different people. Right. Um, so a small portion of that, about a quarter of that, goes to um, a program, well, a little bit less than a quarter of that, to a program that is supposed to promote responsible gambling. So some people consider that impossible, right? Some people think you shouldn't gamble at all. But the commission is in charge of regulating gambling, and they're saying people are going to gamble. We want them to, to gamble as responsibly as possible. We don't want them to spend more money than they have. We want them to understand how the odds work. We want them to understand that the chance of hitting the jackpot is very, sl is very slim. So they created, um, or they actually licensed a program that started in Canada called GameSense, and they have People go through the casinos. They're called Game Sense Advisors. They're kind of looking for people that might be in trouble. They're trying to make friends, but also they're trying to offer tips on gambling literacy. And the idea, um, it's not clear how well it works, but the idea is that the more people that engage with this Game Sense program, the more they'll figure out how to stay recreational gamblers and not problem gamblers. It kind of reminds me of a C3 policing program, but for gambling, the way that it works. 
in, you mean in terms of like community they're involvement? Walking, they're, yeah, walking they're, the they're walking the floor and keeping an eye out to make sure nobody's out. in trouble. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. I mean, that's one way of looking at it. The other way is looking at it as harm reduction. So it's not that you can't stop people from gambling. You're not going to. That wouldn't make any sense because we've just legalized casinos and the state wants to make money from that, of course. Um, but the idea is um, let's reduce the chances that you'll become addicted to gambling or a problem gambler. Another thing that your story brought up that I thought was really interesting is that there is a voluntary self-exclusion list. Yes. And is this through the state that you can sign up and basically keep yourself kicked out of casinos? Yeah, it's it's you're, you ban yourself. It's basically you've come to a point and GameSense is part of this, like the GameSense advisors help you sign up for this if they feel like if, if people feel like this is what they have to do. Um, but you can sign up for a year, for five years or for a lifetime. Wow. And one thing I thought was interesting is you're not allowed to sign up for a lifetime ban immediately. Like mm. the casinos or, or the, the regulators say you have to try it out first. Make sure that you really want to ban yourself and then you're allowed to ban yourself for your whole life. I thought that was a little strange. Can you myself. unban yourself if you decided at one point to ban yourself? Are you no. really you for can, life for life? You can, if it's one year, you can unban yourself after a year. Uh-huh. Right. But after, if that's that's the whole idea. If you ban yourself for a lifetime, that's it. At least in Massachusetts. That's there what are, I was you know, There ask. are ways to get around it. Like it, it, does, it only applies for casinos in Massachusetts, not right. necessarily for any of the, the larger groups that have casinos in other places. Where that, That's Right. And some people ban themselves and still go in. You know, they they can't quite mm. do it and they often get in trouble. And sometimes security has to escort them out. And that's, you know, and that must be very frustrating, I mm. would think. We're speaking with NEPM's Karen Brown, who's two thirds of the way through a three part series. Part three will air tomorrow about Massachusetts gambling, about gambling addiction, about the a landmark amount of money and resources being put towards gambling addiction in the Commonwealth. But where some of that money is is uh, part of the question. Marlene Warner is the head of the Mass Council on Gaming and Health, who has questions whether the state has the right treatment services. My board is really concerned as well. So they're, you know, trying to figure out ways to just gather more information, figure out as advocacy organization, do we have the right resources in Massachusetts and is the money being spent where it should be? One of the things that you did that I thought was fascinating with this piece is that you called the gambling helpline yourself. Right. And tried to get help. And you did not come across great results. Well, I mean, the the person who answered was was very friendly and empathetic, but they gave a lot of information about where the resources are um, that was not correct. So there's a lot of outdated information that the state is putting out. And the problem is there's not a lot of gambling treatment available. And that I don't think is clear to a lot of people. And this is a this is a nationwide problem. This mm-hmm. is not just in Massachusetts. Um, it's historically people who have problems gambling don't seek out treatment very often. It's a very it's called a hidden addiction. Um, there's a lot of resistance. There's a lot of stigma. Um, but um, we in Massachusetts have so much money, and that is specifically what we're supposed to be doing is providing treatment. So there are a lot of questions. Um, do we have the right resources? Are is there um, promotion to um, is there outreach so mm-hmm. that people who might have problems but don't recognize it are they finding that out? Um, is there enough training of people that um, for therapists in specific gambling treatment, gambling addiction treatment? Um, and it's not that clear who is overseeing whether all of these um, services are available. What's interesting that your piece brought up as well is that there's $24 million that comes from the casinos to 
address these public health issues with gambling. We know where about a quarter of it is going towards, but nobody really knows where the rest of this money is right now? Well, we know where it is. It's in the Department of Public Health, and there is an Office of Problem Gambling. And I did speak to the head of that. Um, His name is Victor Ortiz, and um, I was very appreciative that he was willing to, to talk with me. But I asked where is all of this money going? Because there's even a dispute how much money goes, how much money is in this total pool. The mm-hmm. Gaming Commission told me $24 million. The Department of Public Health said it was actually less than that. It's hard to get the numbers, which I think is odd. You would think this is public yeah. public information. And you do have a public records request in for it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I have a public records request for where is the three quarters that the Department of Public Health is supposed to be spending. Right. So they have a lot of documents, but they don't have specifically which programs are being um, funded. They couldn't tell me exactly. You know, they sort of gave me a lot of vague information. I said, I want to know specifically who is getting your money and for what purpose and when and who's being helped. And that's where they said, you're going to have to give us a public records request because we're just not going to hand that information over to you. And I I thought that was interesting. <laughs> certainly is. Karen Brown, part three will air tomorrow morning and then will be available on NEPM.org. Want to give us a teaser about what tomorrow's uh, segment will be all about? That's going to be mostly about the research into problem gambling, which is another area in which Massachusetts is considered a real groundbreaker, that um, a portion of this money I was just telling you about, the $24 million, a portion of it goes specifically to look into how many people have gambling addiction problems, um, how many people are aware of treatment, how many, um, you know, what comes first, the gambling problems or, or the money problems. Um, and all of this um, is, again, funneled through the Gaming Commission, which is an unusual thing in this country. That is strange. Um, um, but the money for that has been shrinking um, also, which is sort of interesting. So that's a little bit of what I talk about tomorrow. Tomorrow morning on NEPM's version of Morning Edition, and then it will be on NEPM.org, the NEPM News Department's Karen Brown. Thanks so much. Thank you. On the way, down the Connecticut River we go in a pumpkin scooped for one with Dave Rothstein. But up next, we'll hear how the Stockbridge Munsley community, Williams College, and Images Cinema in Williamstown are coming together to present the Indigenous Film Festival this weekend. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Time enough for counting when the dealing's done. Rumor has it. That Weird Al Yankovic is a frequent person in Williamstown. Have you seen Weird Al Yankovic at Images Cinema? I have not, but one thing that was actually really cool that happened because uh, Weird Al Yankovic's uh, daughter is a student at Williams College um, is is why Weird Al has been seen (laughs) in and around Williamstown. We've got to be one of like five theaters in the country or something like that got that got to do a screening of Weird the Al Yankovic. That movie. movie's so good. It is so good. <laughs> I'm also going to shamelessly plug that Weird Al Yankovic's UHF is going to be screening at another cinema in Turner's on Saturday night, but you should definitely go to all the Indigenous People Film Festival films too. That is the the tough choice, but if you can make that a double bill somehow, right? That's, that's November is Indigenous Peoples Month, and this Friday is the opening reception of the Indigenous Peoples Film Festival at Images Cinema in Williamstown. Presented on the traditional territories of the Stockbridge Muncie Band of Mohican Indians, this festival is produced by Images Cinema in collaboration with SMC Cultural Affairs and the students of History 276, a class at Williams College? (laughs) Yeah, that's correct. It was uh, taught spring semester of 
the previous school year. Awesome. And Friday at 6.30 at the Images Cinema in Williamstown, right around the corner from Williams College, is the opening night reception of the Indigenous People's Film Festival, catered by Indigenous Deliciousness. So we want to know all about all of these things, History 276, Indigenous Deliciousness, and of course the films. And joining us is the executive director of Images Cinema, Williamstown, Dan Hudson. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So is this a frequent collaboration between, let's say, a history class at Williams College and the historic cinema that's uh, right down the street? Or frankly, any of the classes at Williams College. <laughs> you know, one of the, the things that was really cool when I first arrived at Images Cinema was learning about a lot of these sort of connective tissues and collaborations, some, some of which are a little bit more sporadic and organic. But then we've also had on the film festival side, some longstanding collaborations with some faculty. We have a French film festival, which historically happens in February, um, and a German-Austrian film festival, which historically happens in October. There's definitely precedent, but not always including an additional third-party collaborator, um, which we had for this festival with the Stockbridge Muncie. Tell us about that relationship with the Stockbridge Muncie. You know, one of the things that I noticed when I first started my tenure here about a little over a year ago, I saw that the Stockbridge Muncie had an office there on Spring Street, just a few doors down for us. And I reached out to Bonnie Hartley, who works in that office, who connected me with Monique Tyndall, um, who's based in Wisconsin, where the the reservation for the Stockbridge Muncie is. And um, just kind of was like, hey, we're here, um, very open to ideas that you might have different different things that we could do together. So that kind of planted the seed, which gained momentum with when the students of History 276 who worked with uh, Bonnie Hartley and Monique Tyndall and others um, in the Stockbridge Muncie to think about different ways to increase visibility and kind of cultural activity that can be done here in the Berkshires. And we raised our hand as a very eager collaborator. We're speaking with Dan Hudson, who's the executive director of Images Cinema in Williamstown, who is presenting the Indigenous Peoples Film Festival. The opening night reception is this Friday. Can we talk about some of the selection that you've got? Because I think that this is really curated well. How did you go about it? You know, one thing for us as we were approaching this, both from Images Cinema and also from the the students at Williams College, we wanted to try to find a way to center the Stockbridge Muncie and kind of their more specific tribal experience. And one of the things that was a little challenging is that there is not so much representation of the Mohican peoples specifically in in film, but there were a couple entry points to that. One of which is that Sheila Tausi um, is an enrolled tribal member of the Stockbridge Muncie. She was in a lot of film and television in the 90s and 2000s. And so we're featuring um, Thunderheart, which is her feature film debut as a tribute to her. And it's also kind of interesting because it's kind of an opportunity to, to look back at Native representation in film from about 30 years ago and kind of contrast that with uh, films that are made today. There's been a homicide on Indian land. They sent him to a foreign land. What's my cover? In the middle of America. You're going in there as who you are. American Indian federal officer. To uncover the truth. Federal officer, hands on your head. Do it. What's your name? Sure as hell ain't Geronimo, chief. I think maybe you guys got off the wrong exit, yeah? 
You looking for Mount Rushmore? Thunderheart was written and directed by non-native people, and the majority of the films that we have in the lineup are written and directed by native and indigenous peoples. And that's one of the things that's really exciting that that, that just in 30 years, we kind of have that evolution um, and representation, both in front of and behind the camera. And Thunderheart will be part of this film festival on Saturday evening at 7.30. It's a 1992 film that stars, in addition to Sheila Tausey, who you mentioned, Graham Greene, who is an indigenous actor, and Val Kilmer and Sam Shepard. What are some of the other films that we can see at the Indigenous Peoples Film Festival, which kicks off this Friday in Williamstown? Our opening night and closing night features are both films that are on the festival circuit right now. So Images Cinema through this festival is hosting these films before they're available to stream, buy on DVD or anything like that. So this is, you know, a premiere opportunity to check out these works. Um, our opening night film, Fry Red Face and Me, um, was at South by Southwest and Toronto International Film Festival and some others. It's a coming-of-age film um, exploring youth grappling with different sexual orientations, gender identities, and that sort of thing in Navajo reservation area. Why do you play with dolls? You speak English? I got in trouble playing with dolls one time. There were Hopi Kachina dolls, and I made them kiss. What's your clan? Salt. Are you sure? Yeah, salt. Well, don't just say salt. Say salt. I am a salt clan. Say Ashihe. I am Ashihe. And um, our closing night film features Lily Gladstone, um, who's um, just in the Killers of the Flower Moon. She's kind of really um, a high-profile actress. She's going to probably win an Oscar. I've not sat down for the three and a half hours of this film yet, but I can't wait to. But everybody says she's dynamite. And if you've watched Reservation Dogs, she's one of the aunties in that, and she's dynamite in that as well. So mm-hmm. this is a big star on the rise here. Yeah, absolutely. I, lo- I Shout out to Lily Gladstone. Um, I was fortunate to kind of bump shoulders with her in the Seattle film scene. Everybody should check out Three Women if they want to see some, <laughs> some early Lily Gladstone. But this, uh, this film on Sunday night, it's Fancy Dance. Tell us a little bit about that. Um, So Fancy Dance, another interesting sort of entry point, another Reservation Dogs connection. Erica Tremblay um, was writer-director of the film. She directed a bunch of episodes of Reservation Dogs and was a writer on that show as well. The story delves into one of the ongoing crises in North America, which is the missing and murdered Indigenous women crisis. But it's also a very beautiful um, human film that um, centers on the relationship between uh, Lily Gladstone and her sister, who is trying to get to this titular fancy dance. Well, what's your move? Far as I can tell, I'm the only one out there looking. You always do this. You take something that's happened to everybody and you make it about yourself. But you keep going on like this, it don't end well for you. A little darker, but it's um, kind of an interesting counterpoint to kind of the, the levity and sweetness of the opening night film. And that's how the festival will close. On Sunday, we're speaking with Dan Hudson, the executive director of Images Cinema Williamstown, who'll be presenting the Indigenous Peoples Film Festival starting this Friday evening. I think it's a really interesting curation decision to put short films, mostly documentary short films, ahead of each of these feature films. That format allows you to get pack a lot of information about a often ignored subject, the subject of indigenous people, to folks before they have a little bit of fiction in the same area. Whose decision was it to pair these together? Yeah, that was actually came from uh, Monique Tyndall um, at the Stockbridge Muncie Cultural Affairs Office. Some of the short films that are going to be playing before these films are actually 
directly telling histories and stories from Stockbridge Munsey. You can also learn about the Lakota people as well. Another documentary that seems to be garnering a lot of buzz that will be screened on Sunday afternoon is Lakota Nation versus United States. Yeah, so this is a film that we're excited to bring. Um, it has it did come out in theaters a couple months ago, and um, it was a film that was requested that we screen, and we said, we're going to get to it. <laughs> we got a, really, a really great spot for it. Yeah, th- this film I think is going to be interesting. It kind of uses what has been in the in the news a lot lately, the um, Standing Rock protests around the Dakota Access Pipeline, kind of as a jumping off point to talk about protests and activism and resistance across hundreds of years of U.S. history. When they illegally took the land from our people, it wasn't just the land itself that was taken. It was part of a process to colonize us. Have the Williams students in this particular class, History 276, influenced the films that have come in or how this festival has been held? What involvement have they had? Yeah, so they were very involved in the um, sort of initial ideation around both including the films like the Sheila Tausi tribute and those short films which feature uh, histories about the Stockbridge Muncie. The the one feature film that we haven't talked about yet in the lineup, Beans, is actually a film that was specifically um, requested by the, the students. It's a story of the Mohawk peoples in Quebec, Canada, and the Okia crisis that happened in the 90s. My name is Tegahandakwa. Or you can call me Beans. Everybody does. The occupation of an ancient pine forest on the Mohawk Reserve of Ganazadage is in its fourth month. The people here are protecting a burial ground from being leveled for a golf course expansion by the neighboring town of Oka. We're speaking with Dan Hudson, the executive director of Images Cinema, who this weekend will host the Indigenous Peoples Film Festival. And the opening night reception on Friday is going to have catering by Indigenous Deliciousness. Which, which sounds awesome. It does sound awesome. Tell us a little bit about what Indigenous Deliciousness is, it, other than just something fun to say. We're really excited that we found um, an Indigenous caterer that uh, works here in the Berkshires. So hopefully it, everybody um, has something tasty and can uh, invest in a, a local woman of color owned and run business and, and hires them for other events as well. The menu, as far as I understand it, won't feature anything that is a specifically a Stockbridge Muncie Mohican uh, traditional dish, but there will be flavors and cuisines represented from throughout the sort of North American indigenous experience. Um, and one other thing I will have to plug is that one of the, the greatest snacks of all time that is indigenous in North America, popcorn, uh, will also be popping at the theater all the time. <laughs> the indigenous food that's at almost every movie in every movie theater. Images Theater has also just turned 25. Is again. it 25 or is it older? Is it older? The distinction there is that Images Cinema as a movie theater has been operating as a movie theater since 1916. Right now we're celebrating our 25th anniversary as a 501c3 nonprofit. Ah. Um, We wouldn't still be here 25 years on from that sort of nonprofit designation without that designation. Um, And speaking of which, we do want to acknowledge again uh, Williams College for underwriting the festival, which makes it completely free to the community. Dan Hudson is the executive director of Images Cinema, who is somehow celebrating both its 25th anniversary and its over 100th anniversary. (laughs) 
at the same time. 107th. <laughs> You're so much faster at math than I am. And we'll celebrate <laughs> the Indigenous Peoples Film Festival starting this Friday evening and going through Sunday evening in Williamstown. You can find out the complete list of those films at imagescinema.org. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Monty and Khalees. This was great. I'm really looking forward um, to people checking this festival out. It is time to hear how far a gourd can really take you and your oars with Dave Rothstein, who is paddling down the Connecticut in a pumpkin, a real giant pumpkin. That's up next. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on 88.5 NEPM. That's Smashing Pumpkins. No matter where you are, I can still hear you when you drown. You've traveled very far. Just to see you, I'll come around. Just to see if I'll come around. All of our yesterdays. Perfect. Perfect. And I couldn't help but think about that particular song as my friend Dave Rothstein, a farmer from Florence was paddling a pumpkin down the Connecticut River. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Khalees Smith. I don't think we ever got as many pitches for stories yeah. as we did about this. Everybody was like, do you guys know what is happening right now? And This is the most perfect Fabulous 413 story ever. If you missed it somehow, this is the headline from the Greenfield Recorder, and I loved it. Gord big or gourd home. <laughs> but uh, our friend Scotty... Had a hot take on this that had, had some swears involved with it, but maybe you can distill it. Uh, it <laughs> so I feel like I should preface this with the fact that Scotty is African-American, but it was basically white people be out there living in gingerbread houses and drifting downstream in pumpkins and stuff. It is a magical story where you carved out a 1,024-pound pumpkin, which was placed second at the Big E's heaviest pumpkin contest and then paddled it down the Connecticut River. Tell us why, Dave. Well, first, thanks for having me. No <laughs> I mean, again, as we have mentioned in, in, in several parts of this, like you are living your best fairy tale life, and I think that should just be shared. Yeah. And I think that's really just the point, is that we should be living life to the fullest. I, why did I do it? Yeah. I, there, you know, there's a serious side to this, and there's a funny side. Let's to this. start with the funny side. That's the <laughs> right. funny side. Right. Because... When I was a kid, you could check out the Guinness Book of World Records yeah. when you're at the library oh, at totally. school, and you'd leaf through and be like, "Oh my God, well, I'm have you not seen fast these longest fingernails?" That. I would always be like, "Look oh, at the exactly child. right; they're yeah. all twisted." Yeah, yeah. And now you go on, and there's like a record for everything. Yeah. But I remember when I was up in Goffstown, New Hampshire, maybe about a decade ago, they had a giant pumpkin regatta, and so they had like ten giant pumpkins all there, and they, the town came out, and every group decorated their pumpkin, and people were in costumes, and they did like the hundred yard dash, and it took like five minutes for the pumpkins to get across the hundred yards, and I was like, that looks like fun. I want to do that, <laughs> and then. You know, but where do you get a giant pumpkin, and how do you get it to the river? Right. And so I kind of that, I shelved fairy that fairy godmother. No, that was not. <laughs> no, how, yeah. It could be. Yeah. I liken this thing to. I mean, this is a combination of lots of different dreams and influences. Yeah. But there is kind of like James and the Giant Peach. Oh, right. Yes. Everything's a little oh, oversized. Amazing. Yeah. Yep. Coupled with it's the great pumpkin, Charlie Brown, because yeah. it would not be beyond me to go sit outside and wait for a giant pumpkin and, on a cool autumn night. Absolutely. Mixed with Emmett Otter's Jug Band oh, Christmas. You are speaking oh, my go. language. Because it was the river. Remember Emmett Otter? The like, river bottom it, nightmare band. Yeah. And <laughs> the mother otter oh. rode so slowly yeah. and laboriously. And I was just like, 
that's exactly what I'm living right now, going down the river. <laughs> I am I'm with Emmett and his mom, and we're in a pumpkin. We're followed by eagles. Oh, like, man. And so all of it for me comes back to, this isn't a record about me. This is a record for the people of the valley. Like, this is a magical place. And this was about community, about bringing people together, about bringing joy to people at a time where we've got a lot of divisiveness. And yeah, it's a silly go down a river in a pumpkin. And there was tons of logistics that I hadn't <laughs> thought about that I would now probably do things a little bit differently. But it was a teamwork exercise, right? From people who were paddling with me to the farmer who grew the pumpkin to the people who transported the pumpkin and hollowing it out and weighing it. And um, it was just, the Connecticut River is incredibly special. Like This is a place that is filled with stories and it's timeless. Like we ended at Dinosaur uh, Footprints Reservation and State Park for a reason because, you know, this river will outlast us and it was here long before us. Mm. And so it's timeless and we need to treat it with respect. And it was just an opportunity to say, hey, gather up some, some friends, come on out to the river at a time you wouldn't normally do it and uh, see something a little wacky that you're not going to forget and then maybe discover at that time that there are lots of recreational opportunities and there are things we can do to improve the river health. And you turned it into a fundraiser for three organizations that help with the environment in our area, CESA, who we have on very frequently on this show, the Connecticut River Conservancy, as well as Kestrel Land Trust. What are some of those logistical things that you ran into that you didn't consider when you initially thought about putting a pumpkin in the river and riding it? Uh, will it float? Ah. That's a big one. Yeah. Yes. No, but it's just even like acquiring the pumpkin. So I've grown giant pumpkins for the last five years or so, but I can never get them big enough to actually get inside of. Uh -huh. And this year, my plan was I'm going to do it this year. We're going to do it. And partly because... People this year there were three attempts at the record. Uh huh. Um, Which one, the, well, the whole the record was the record was just a little over thirty eight miles. Uh huh. And that was done on like a big free flowing river, like out on the Missouri River. Right. Mm -hmm. So they had some speed behind them, and they didn't have to worry about dams the way that we do here. Yes. Right. And I was like, if it starts getting up any higher, I'm not going to have a chance to do it on the Connecticut because we have we don't have a stretch without a big portage and you can't get right. a right. thousand foot pumpkin out of there. Right. So, uh, yeah, so just getting the pumpkin. So mine died and I ended up meeting up with Peter Thayer who grew the pumpkin over at uh, the Big E who came in second from a seed named Maverick. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that's the lineage. So, so this the pumpkin's is, this named is a, Maverick? Well, the pumpkin isn't named. This is a really important thing. Like In the pumpkin world, it's kind of like uh, you know, the Westminster dog show, yes. right? right? Like there's a whole pumpkin subculture and it's fascinating, right? And people are really, like people inject them with hormones and they have heated blankets. Oh my gosh, we are going so deep down this rabbit hole. This is amazing. <laughs> right. Tomorrow on the 413. Yeah, we're going to talk all about <laughs> Maverick and its children. Yeah. Pumpkin hormones. <laughs> so it took me like weeks to get Peter's number because it was like hidden away. And uh -huh. so I finally called him and I'm like, dude, I got a crazy idea. And he was on board. I wasn't expecting him to say yes because this is like his prize thing. Yeah. And uh, but he was on board. And so then it was a. It's already like a month old, so it's starting to like decompose. Yeah. So that's already the first logistical problem. Is like, <laughs> do you want to be floating in a, in a pumpkin that's pumpkin on its on its way out? But it turned to be out pretty pretty stable. Um, and then it was getting it from his place 
he had brought it to his workplace in Springfield. He works for Springfield Water Supply. Mm -hmm. So there was a little consternation on part of their staff, understandably so, because they became very attached to going and seeing uh, Maverick every day. Yeah. And when they heard that Maverick was going to go on a journey, <laughs> you know, and it turns out that a number of their staff members showed up on the on the course. Oh, that's great. That's and, great. But, but they weren't there to see me break a record. <laughs> they were there to see Maverick. <laughs> and to curse your name for no, putting Maverick no. open. <laughs> it was a team exercise. And so one person was sitting, it was the Greenfield River, or the Deerfield River coming around Greenfield, that very still section yeah. by mm -hmm. the railroad yard. And there was this person all dressed in black, and she was sitting there between these trees way up on the bank. And I said to the paddlers who were with me, Bill and... Uh, Amelia, I said, shh, there's someone who's just being very contemplative over there. And she yelled, I know that pumpkin. <laughs> That's Pete's pumpkin. <laughs> We're speaking with Dave Rothstein, who if you've been following social media over the last week, you have a, a, uh, no doubt seen a picture of a person paddling a pumpkin down the Connecticut River, trying to break the Guinness Book of World Records record. In just a few minutes that we have left, I know Guinness is very particular in how records are broken. So did you officially break the pumpkin paddling record, or was this uh, an aspirational, you know you broke the record for you, or uh, for all of us, yes. really? <laughs> the record is broken for all of us. For Guinness, there's so many pieces of evidence that they review. It takes like three or four months. Yeah. Uh -huh. um, but I don't know, you know, so someone else broke it this year and did like 39 miles, Yeah. and we did 40. So it's possible when their GPS unit comes in, maybe they did 41. So we'll have to see what Guinness says. But it's the feet, and it's the drawing the attention to the river. And I'll say, coincidentally, you had a guest on earlier, Representative McGovern. Yes. Uh, he and uh, Senator Shaheen from New Hampshire introduced, at the same time the pumpkin was going in the water, they introduced the Connecticut River Watershed Partnership Act. That's which, right. if it's actually passed, will bring millions of dollars to the Connecticut River for protection, for restoration, and for recreational opportunities. And so there's a lot of happenstance in this story. And But for me, the most fulfilling is the sense of community that was built around in terms of the people who helped, the people who showed up, the people who were inspired to get to the river. And it's the perfect metaphor for the river. Like, we need to show up for the river. That is Dave Rothstein, who didn't just show up for the river. He showed up for the river in a giant pumpkin and paddled it to break the world record. Thank you so much. This is the most fabulous 413 story of all time so far. But now oh. I feel like we need our own pumpkin regatta. Yeah, I want to help you put on a pumpkin regatta. Well, you don't so. have to ask me because the Connecticut River Conservancy is thinking about doing it next year. Oh, we're hey. tight with them, so that there should be great. Thank you so much for joining My us. My pleasure. Tomorrow on the show, we're going to have the Amherst Survival Center on. We're going to have Stone Soup Cafe on. We're going to have live music Friday, and we're going to drink wine. That's true. Um, all of that. I'm Kali Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. We'll see you tomorrow on the Fabulous 413.